Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 11, verse 23 through 29. Hebrews 11, 23. Let's stand as we read God's Word. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word to us this morning, and you may be seated. We all love rags-to-riches stories, don't we? Uh, Cinderella, Annie, My Fair Lady, Rocky, somebody who has nothing and then they rise to the top, the blind side, the pursuit of happiness. There's no end to the list of, of films and books that we have that, uh, that reflect this, this love we have for a rags-to-riches story. Well, today the writer of Hebrews is seeking to encourage an enduring faith in us, a faith that endures in the face of struggle and suffering and and temptation. He's encouraging our enduring faith by pointing us to Moses, whose life up to the age of 40 was certainly a rags-to-riches story. And it's my hope today that as we look at Moses' faith, Uh, and the decisions that he made and the life that he lived, that we would be encouraged as we consider four points, the choice of faith, the cost of faith, the reward of faith, and then the object of faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing chapter 11 because he wants to give numerous examples of people who had faith that endured because the original audience, as we've been saying all along, uh, was struggling to keep the faith. They were uh, tempted to abandon their faith and turn away from Christ because it was very difficult in their day. They were suffering mightily. Uh, Christianity was outlawed and they were being uh, reproached and, and some were being beaten and thrown in prison and some had even lost their lives. And they were getting weary and they were shrinking back. And, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to keep going and to, to not give in, but to maintain their hope for the future. And so as we come to this passage, we, we see Moses here. Now, the story of Moses is familiar to most. Uh, to sum it up, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were living in Egypt, uh, where they relocated during the time of Joseph. 
Joseph had risen to second in command and there was a famine in the land and so Joseph brought his family uh, into Egypt and there they lived. But as time moved on and, and as the Hebrews multiplied, uh, the Egyptians, especially the Egyptian leadership, they enslaved and oppressed the children of Israel. And despite this oppression, the Hebrew population continued to grow and, and, and boom. And so then the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, decreed that all the Hebrew male babies were to be killed. And of course, this was about the time that Moses was born. And as we read, read here in the first verse that we read this, this, uh, this, this morning, Moses' parents hid him for a while, but then realized that they could not hide him forever. And so his mother made a little ark. This is actually what the Hebrew word is, like Noah's ark, except it was baby-sized. Made a little ark for Noah and put him on the river. And there he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses went from being a dead man walking before he could walk to Egyptian royalty in just a day. It was truly a rags-to-riches story. And furthermore, Stephen tells us in his sermon in Acts 7 that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So not only was his life spared to become royalty, but also this royal life suited him very well and, and he excelled in it. He enjoyed this lifestyle of privilege, security, wealth, and pleasure for 40 years. But then something changed. Verse 24, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now Stephen gives us a little more detail in Acts 7 about what, what, uh, what was going on there in Moses' life and heart. When he was 40 years old, Stephen says, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. You see here, Moses made a decision when he was 40 years old. He decided to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It says that he, he came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, because he wanted to save them from oppression. He felt that God was raising him up to go to his people and to free them from bondage. And he left behind the treasures of Egypt and the fleeting pleasures of sin to identify with God, his people, and his cause. Now, verse 24 says that it was by faith that he did this. It was by faith that he made this decision. It was the faith, faith that was handed down to him by his parents who had influenced him at an early age. You remember when he was discovered, his sister was following along, looking out for Mo, little baby Moses and, and uh, got Moses' actual birth mother to, to come and take care of Moses for Pharaoh's daughter. So certainly his mother trained him up in the ways of the Lord. And it came into his heart at the age of 40 to identify with the Lord, his cause, and the Lord's people. Now, 
Here's the question that we need to consider today. Have you ever made that decision that Moses made? Was there a a time in your life when you decided in your heart to identify with the Lord, His cause, and His people? Now, I know that some of you can say, yes, I can point to a very specific day when when I made that decision. And others of you may not be, uh, you may not be able to remember a time because you were raised in a Christian home and you've always uh, identified with the Lord and His people. Well, I'll ask it another way. Are you now, in your heart, decidedly identified with the Lord, His cause, and His people? That's the decision that Moses made, and that's the decision that we're being called to make. What are you pursuing in your life? Moses had, a, had an incredibly comfortable life up to the age of 40, living in the palaces of Egypt. Many today are pursuing the good life, comfort, pleasure, treasure, which lead to a sense of security or significance or approval in the world. The American dream, freedom, which includes the opportunity for prosperity and success, upward social mobility for themselves and their children. But like Moses, we need to recognize that these these things are fleeting. They don't last forever. There's some things that are more important than health and wealth and pleasure and treasure. There's something greater to be pursued. We need to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm pursuing with my life? What am I after? What am I going for? Moses had the good life. Moses had the American dream before there was ever America. Thousands of years before. And he left it behind. He left fleeting pleasure for lasting treasure. And that's what we want to do, and that's what I'm asking you today. Have you? But first, we need to think about some things. First, secondly, first thing we need to do is, have we made that decision? Second thing, we've got to count the cost. Jesus told his, people, his followers, his people, that we ought to count the cost. Uh, Moses counted the cost, and he and his parents had a higher value, they placed a higher value on God than anything else. We see, a, we see it there in uh, the several verses. A theme running through this passage. It tells us there in verse 23 that uh, Moses' parents saw that, that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were more concerned about God than they were about Pharaoh's edict. They were more concerned about preserving Moses' life and not killing him than some earthly king's edict. And then Moses, when he was grown up, verse 24, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had a higher regard for God and his people and his cause than he did for being part of a royal family. And then verse 27, again, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. He didn't fear the king, he feared God. He put his faith and trust in the Lord. But it was costly. He put his faith in God above everything else, but it was costly. He left the royal court, and he left the treasures of Egypt, and what did he get in return? Mistreatment and reproach, the reproach of Christ, it says there. So that's the cost of faith. Jesus said uh, in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now that doesn't mean take a vow of poverty, but what it means is that Nothing in your life is more important than the Lord, his cause, and his people. And that's what Moses, that's the decision that Moses made, and it was costly. So when you come to this decision, and as we, you know, many of you here have made that decision, this is just a general reminder for us to to be recommitted to that decision and to recognize the cost of it. So we've got to do a cost-benefit analysis here. And, and here's, here's the assessment that Moses made. Moses decided that mistreatment with the people of God is better than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. And I want to convince you of that today. That being mistreated, facing affliction, persecution, is better than any sin. Thomas Manton, I told you a few weeks ago, when we entered chapter 11... Uh, he preached, I don't remember how many sermons on Hebrews 11, but it's a thick book about like that. And he didn't even make it to the last several verses. Uh, preached on it for, for who knows how long. But he, he says the greatest affliction is better than the least sin. The greatest affliction is better than the least sin. He, he gives about 12 points on why that's true, but I'm going to give you just a, a few here. The first reason is... When we suffer, the offense is done to us. We're the ones that are, mis- are being mistreated. But when we sin, God is offended. We're mistreating God. It's, it's nothing to offend man. Yes, if you follow Jesus in our day and time, it's increasingly becoming offensive to people to follow Traditional Christian values is increasingly offensive to people. But it's one thing to offend people. It's quite another thing to offend God. Sin offends God. Affliction, yes, hurts us physically. Maybe may hurt our feelings when we're mocked and reproached. But affliction only hurts our bodies or our feelings. Sin destroys our soul. Sin destroys our soul. Sin separates us from God, but suffering and affliction do not. God is with us, even in the midst of the fire and the flame. Affliction may be good. In fact, God says that all things work to the good for them that love him. But sin is never good. God can use afflictions in our lives. God can use the mistreatment that we face and the persecution that we face to sanctify us, to build us up, to strengthen us. But sin comes from the devil. So the greatest affliction is better than the least sin. And that was the assessment that Moses made. 
And that's the assessment that we need to make today as we think about if I'm going to identify with God, his people, and the cause of, of Christ, it's going to cost me. You need to be ready for that because many people have been told falsely that you can have your best life now if you follow Christ. Well, all you've got to do is read the end of chapter 11 here, and you'll see that's not a really good life that these heroes of the faith had. Look at verse 32. What more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. All that sounds great. Some, though, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins and sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So Christianity is not just about having your best life now, not, not just about getting wealthy and, and healthy, because these people certainly didn't get that, but they're commended for their faith. They were the faithful ones. So it's costly. It's costly to follow Jesus. Jesus said it himself. He said, if you follow me, you're going to face tribulation. You're going to face persecution. And blessed are you when you do so. And the Christian life is one of self-denial, dying to self, putting sin to death. So there is a cost to Christianity. If you come into it, this faith, thinking, okay, now everything is going to be rosy, anytime trouble comes, you're going to be disappointed with God. But God never promised you a rose garden, as the song says. God doesn't promise those things. He promises something in the future, and we'll talk about that now, the reward of faith. Verse 26, Moses said, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ. Now, Moses obviously lived a long time before Jesus came to earth, but he considered, the writer of Hebrews tells us, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. One commentator, Westcott, says this, the reproach about, about the reproach of Christ. He says, the reproach of the Christ, the word Christ is Messiah in the Hebrew, uh, their equivalent, the anointed one, God's chosen. The reproach of the Christ is the reproach which belongs to him who is the appointed envoy of God to a rebellious world. This reproach, which was endured in the highest degree by Christ Jesus, was endured also by those who in any degree prefigured or represented him, like Moses, prefigured Christ. Those, that is, in whom he partially manifested and manifests himself, those who live in him and in whom he lives. Anybody that identifies with Christ puts themselves in a position to receive the reproach of Christ. We're one with him. He is in us. We are in him. And 
If we're his followers, we shouldn't be surprised that we get treated the same way that Jesus was treated. As it says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. John 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So he was rejected. So Moses would rather have the reproach of Christ than great treasure. See, he was an envoy of God. He was God's man to deliver God's people. And he was reproached for it. First by Pharaoh in the Egyptian court, and then even by the people he was trying to save once they crossed the Red Sea, once they traveled a while on the Exodus as they grumbled at Moses in the desert. But he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He wasn't simply putting up with the reproach of Christ. He wasn't just only enduring through the reproach of Christ. No, he treasured the reproach of Christ. He was rejoicing to be identified with the Messiah, with God and his cause and his people. He treasured that more than anything else. And no amount of suffering, no amount of persecution, no amount of reproach or mocking or anything else that came his way turned him away from that. He would rather have that than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking to the reward, it tells us there. He was looking to the reward of the Lord himself, of having that relationship with God and being close to God and being aligned with God in his cause, and, and being a part of God's people. He valued that above all things. And the writer of Hebrews has reminded the, 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 his, his audience that they too had believed that. Look, look back at chapter 10, verse 32. He reminds them of, of, of previous events in their lives. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the important part. They knew they had a better possession than all the possessions that they had and something that was lasting beyond this, this earth. And he goes on, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. There's something in the future for Christians that is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Jesus is returning. He is risen from the dead. He is alive, fully God, fully human, at the right hand of the Father. He's going to return, and he's going to usher in judgment day. And then he's going to set up a new heavens and new earth and an eternal kingdom. And then we will dwell there with no sin forever. Verse 39 of chapter 10. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, it's all about our souls that are eternal. So that's the reward. Christ is returning. That's where our hope lies. Not in this life. Not in just having security in this life, treasures in this life, money in this life, health in this life. No, it's all about what's coming. 
Now, finally, the object of faith. Where does our faith need to rest? And it needs to rest on Jesus. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. If we look to chapter 12, uh, that's where the, the conclusion of the argument comes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, like Moses, Abraham, etc., let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus. He's been telling us this throughout this whole book. Consider Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's better. He's better. He's better than anything else. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses points us to Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us to Jesus. Look at verse 28 of chapter 11. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So Moses, as you know, they had the Passover. They sacrificed the lamb, uh, and they put the, the blood over the doorframe of the house so that the angel of death would not come and destroy them. Moses sprinkled the blood, trusting what God had told them, trusting in God's promise of deliverance, doing what God told them to do before it ever happened. Jesus spilled his own blood. He is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. He is the one that saves us. He is the one that delivers us out of bondage. Verse 29, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. Moses led them to safety. Jesus leads us to the promised land. He's greater than Moses, and he's the object of our faith. He calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But he did it first. He denied himself in a greater way than we will ever deny ourselves. He laid aside his glory. The Son of God became a man and suffered and increasingly suffered through his life until he died on the cross. So he denied himself and he sacrificed himself for us. And it is a great honor and privilege to be aligned with him, to be part of his family, part of his cause, part of his people. Have you made that decision and counted the cost? Are you looking to the reward that's coming? Put your faith in the Lord. Trust in him. He is the true object of faith. You think about those folks on the Exodus. I mean, when you're walking through a wall of water on either side, uh, I think I'd be pretty scared. See, they were following Moses' instructions. And, you know, maybe some of them were going, oh, I'm going to die any moment, as they walked through to the other side. And they were frightened. And then some of them were probably going, wow, this is really cool. I mean, look, there's water standing up. And they're just rejoicing all the way. See, it's not the quality of your faith. It's the object of your faith that's important. They trusted what Moses told them. Some of them were shaky. Some of them were firm in it. But they were all trusting what Moses said. If we put our faith in Christ, you know, maybe we are shaky sometimes. Maybe we're confident sometimes, but it's the object of our faith that's important, Jesus Christ. So I enjoin you today 
to put your faith in the only one who can save us and who has promised such a great reward for us. Endure in your faith. Renew your commitment to the Lord today. And if you've never trusted in the Lord, put your, put your life in his hands. I commend him to you today. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this encouraging passage. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us all to not worry about trouble that comes our way because of our faith in you, but be more worried about falling into the fleeting pleasures of sin. Lord, we pray that you would save us, that you would help us to have a deeper faith in you and trust in you, and help us, like Moses, to identify with you and your people and your cause. Lord, we pray that you would help us to endure as we see our world becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. Help us, Lord, to be firm in our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.